So I really enjoyed uh, the prior speaker, uh, Jeremy. That was really great, and he really, um, I think, captured a lot of what I've been seeing at more of the university level. And I think that we have uh, a very deep cultural problem. We have a de very deep administrative problem, which are not gonna be easy to overcome, but you have to start someplace. And I think a lot of progress has been made in the last two years. A couple of points I'd like to make, because uh, what he said about the hollowed out uh, was so, rang so true to what I see. Um, I see the same sort of issues even at the law school level. And I give this, make this point to students at the beginning of every semester that they're hiding behind their laptops too much during class. There's a big debate in the law school about whether we should ban laptops, talk about banning cell phones, ban laptops in the classroom. And there's a very visceral reaction from students when you want to detach them from their electronic laptop in the classroom. The law school has um, some sort of programming where it's supposed to block the internet in classrooms, but it doesn't work. I mean, the students know how to get around it. And one of the things I tell them is that the difference between, um, call it my generation or earlier generations and the current generation of law students is they don't make eye contact, that point has been made. They don't know how to read people's emotions. They don't really often like to even have human contact. I can't tell you how many times people prefer to text and to email than to have a conversation. And that that's gonna be really harmful to them as lawyers, particularly if you're doing litigation, but not just litigation, even if you're doing corporate. You've got to be able to, when you're examining a witness, you've got to be able to look at that witness and read their expressions and see how they react to your questions and, and because that will tell you where you need to go with your cross-examination and they don't have those skills. And we try to develop them, but I think the technology is way beyond K through 12 as a problem. It's now, uh, you know, our future lawyers, et cetera, they just don't have those human interaction skills. Not to say none of them do, but a as a group, I think that's, that's really true. The other thing I think we need to keep in mind um, is that, and I think this might have been what I talked about last year, this really is in many ways a fight for national survival. Um, and one of the things we do at my website is we find either parents or teachers and we let them tell their stories and then we push those stories out into the media. And one of the key stories we've told, um, and it's been in the news now for a year and a half, is a middle school teacher in Providence, Rhode Island, who went public with the damage that CRT-related materials were doing to her middle school students. And she is a white woman, blonde hair, German background, to paraphrase Mark Stein's description of Elizabeth Warren, she's the whitest white since Frosty the Snowman fell in a vat of whiteout, okay? <laughs> but for 20 plus years, she had a great relationship with a school population, which in Providence is close to 100% non-white minority. Uh, never a problem until about two years ago when they changed the curriculum and they came in and they literally pulled out of the classrooms all the great books, all the great authors that she used to teach, uh, including many African-American great authors, and they stopped teaching the Holocaust. Um, they, and all these were 
pulled off the shelves in her classroom and literally thrown into dumpsters. Um, and they were replaced by pamphlets. And the pamphlets were from uh, a major book publisher uh, who does a lot in the education field. And they had a very consistent theme in them. And the consistent theme was oppressor, oppressed. Everything about our history, everything about our life was oppressor, oppressed. And um, she saw the change in the students even after just a year that they began to view the world as oppressor, oppressed. They began to view her as an oppressor. They started referring to her as America. You're America because you're white. We're not America. They stopped standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. In Rhode Island, it is mandatory for teachers to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. The students don't have to do it, but they have, it has to be recited in the classroom. Um, and they just stopped standing for it. And so she saw how this turned them not just against um, you know, uh, her, but also against the country. So really, the fight that we're fighting is not just an education fight. It really, in many ways, is a fight for the survival of the country. But don't blame the students, OK? Don't blame the students. So two uh, things that I've seen, or two experiences that I've had, is when given the opportunity to hear other viewpoints, when given the opportunity to step out of the mold that is expected of them, uh, students, there's more desire for that than you would think. This is not a student problem. Um, one anecdote is in 2017, I was invited, invited to speak at Vassar College, and the topic was free speech. And the uh, title of my presentation is that in quotation marks, hate speech is still free speech. Wanting to make the point that under our notions of free speech, that um, hate speech is not banned. The answer to it is traditionally more speech, pointing out why it's wrong, et cetera. Well, that ignited the campus completely. Um, so insanely that there were multiple campus-wide meetings to address this person coming to campus to speak about this. And um, they organized protests against it. The student government demanded my appearance be canceled. I had been invited by the Vassar Conservative Libertarian Union, which was all of nine students in the campus of 2000. <laughs> but because they were a student organization, they could invite a speaker. Um, and they organized um, protests for my appearance. I had to meet the campus security off campus to be escorted to the classroom, the large lecture hall where this was going to happen. Um, they had um, teams uh, there to uh, assist students who were traumatized by my coming to campus. They, the student teams um, had glow sticks so they could guide students to safe spaces. Um, one of the space, safe spaces was the campus library, which was in the same main building that I was going to be speaking in. And uh, I kid you not, they had coloring books for college students who were too stressed out by my being there. Well, the long story short is, had they said nothing, I probably would have had 15 people in the room the nine students from the conservative Vassar, and a few of their friends who they probably had to bribe to get there. But because they put on this big show of protest, 
we had almost 300 students there, um, overflowing into the hallways from the um, main lecture hall. So it was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, lecture halls on the campus, and they were flowing several deep into the hallways. Um, and about 50 students showed up dressed in, I guess we would call it now, Antifa black, all black, as a sign of protest. Um, and it was one of the best nights I've ever had on a campus anywhere. Because those 300 students sat there and they listened. And it was very obvious they had never heard about the First Amendment. They had never heard about why free speech is important. They had never heard why you're being offended is not the measure of who gets to speak. Um, we had a, I gave a 45 minute lecture, um, which was derided by somebody as nothing more than a basic civics lecture. There was nothing really so legal about it. And you know what, you're right. It was a basic civics lesson that they'd never heard before in their entire lives. They stayed, not a single interruption, 45 minute speech, an hour and 15 minute question and answer. They lined up to ask me questions, like they'd never heard this and they were really interested to learn. And the only reason it didn't extend beyond an hour and 15 minutes for the Q&A was security was saying like, you know, it's getting late, okay? We're gonna have to go into overtime, it's 10 o'clock, we really need to, to go. Uh, and that taught me that there is a yearning out there for students that, not all students, but many students who really wanna hear alternative viewpoints and who wanna do this. So the problem is not the students. The second anecdote is just this semester, I almost feel like I've made some sort of breakthrough, is because I'm the faculty advisor to virtually, if not every right of center student group on campus, and I'd like to think it's because I'm so wonderful, but the reality is there's literally nobody else who can do it on the campus. Um, in a campus of 17, 1800 faculty members, there's literally nobody else they can find who'd be willing to do it. And so um, I'm used to interacting with the conservative students at Cornell, but this semester I got invited by two nonpartisan student groups, undergraduate groups, uh, on campus, and we just had a debate last week at the Cornell Political Union about affirmative action and my proposition that discriminating, we need to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Um, essentially, John Roberts' configuration that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. <clears throat> and format was I gave a presentation, they had Q&A, then they debated among themselves. And believe it or not, the resolution actually passed, okay? Uh, not by a lot, but it did pass. And the students were really engaged. They wanted to hear my alternative viewpoint, one that's never heard on campus, I assure you. Um, and that tells me that there is, again, that desire. And I've been invited by a second nonpartisan, non-conservative student group, the Pre-Law Society, uh, to debate political correctness. And um, so there is, believe it or not, we cannot blame the students. Uh, all the pathologies you're seeing that were so well documented by the speaker before me, we cannot blame the students for it. It's really society's fault, it's our fault, um, and we've gotta do better for them. We can't expect them to overcome these hurdles on their own. Um, so I, this is very much a fight for national survival, um, and I think we are at an inflection point, and I think in many ways, we have won the public relations battle. 
not everywhere and not with 100% of the people, but uh, what is commonly referred to or loosely referred to as CRT, critical race theory, is a toxic term now. They run from it like it's the plague. Okay, uh, that is a, a major achievement. And then we get into these stupid arguments, well, it is CRT, it's not CRT, but no, very few people are actually defending it. I mean, we do see activists who will defend it, and we, will, we do see that. Uh, but at a macro public level, it's not being defended. Um, the question is, can they kind of surreptitiously work it? work it in. So, and I, th and I think that's a major battle, although it's a battle which, at least in the news headlines, is much more recent, uh, really this year, um, is the radical gender ideology that a lot of people are focused on now. And that also, I think the public relations battle has been won there, not to say there aren't activists and et cetera um, who enjoy that and want that pushed and want the drag shows and for little kids and things like that. Um, but that's not a national, they've not won that national macro level battle. The public relations battle there has been won. And I think that what we saw last year, so 2021 was the year of CRT in many ways um, for national dialogue. And this year it's the gender stuff. Uh, and it will have, I think, a huge electoral impact just like it did in Virginia. I think you'll see that being a the kind of a big impact in the 2022 midterms. So we've won in many ways the public relations battle, um, but that's not enough, okay? And that's really where I come into the notion of an inflection point. Now that we've addressed the narrative, we need to address the infrastructure that perpetuates these things. Because you can win the news narrative but if the same administrators are there, if the same book publishers are there, if the same funders are there, if all of that stuff is still there, and for the most part it is, um, nothing's gonna change. And so the inflection point, I think people who care about children, who care about education need to now be making is to address the uh, systemic problems that we have. And that's, that's a lot diff more difficult. Um, I think the systemic problems, in some ways, at least at the higher ed level, are getting worse. At Cornell, they now require DEI statements from all new hires, faculty hires, and all faculty promotions. So as warped as the ideological outlook is among faculty in universities, it's going to get worse. I mean, literally no one will get through their screening. There will be nobody who slips through uh, because you not only need to bow down and recite uh, the you know, virtues of DEI, you also need to prove that you have tailored your career to it. And that in some ways is even more pernicious. You need to be, if you look at the rubric that Cornell University has on its website about how to evaluate DEI statements from faculty candidates, you need to show a history of having done these things. It's not enough just to say it. And so what you're gonna get, all new faculty entrants and anyone who's currently on the faculty and wants a promotion typically to, to a tenured position <clears throat> is gonna have to show that they lived it and they've acted it and they've used it in their teaching. It's not enough just to say you agree with it. So this is gonna get worse. Where I've come out uh, pretty clearly on higher education is that it cannot be reformed from within. There are a lot of groups who are doing 
a lot of good work and I respect it to try to bring viewpoint diversity to campuses and I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing that. But ultimately it's not gonna succeed. I don't know what the answer is in higher ed, but it cannot be reformed internally. Uh, it's gonna to have to be external forces and it's gonna to have to be legislation, it's gonna to have to be funding, it's gonna to have to be other things. What they look like remains to be seen, but I do believe academia is pretty much gone. Uh, and now the question is, how do we protect society from academia? Uh, because it can't be changed. The, the systems are there, the bureaucrats are there, the DEI statement requirements are there, and they are spreading. And if you see what's happening in professional schools, law schools, and medical schools, and elsewhere, it's just as bad. Um, there is uh, a new issue, like I mentioned, the, the gender ideology. Um, I view that as more of a passing phase than the CRT stuff, um, because it's so horrific, the stories that we're seeing, it cannot, it cannot last, okay? It just cannot last. I mean, I don't believe our society is at a point we're going to protect, you know, uh, male students, uh, transgender students, um, uh, to be in the girls' bathroom and to be in the girls' shower with them. I mean, it, we're just not gonna accept that as a society. Um, and uh, so I, don't, I think that's a passing phase. That's um, a, a social media phase. Uh, not to say there aren't real issues there, but in terms of it sweeping the nation, I think that's gonna burn itself out. Um, and uh, I don't think the CRT stuff is gonna burn itself out. And I think that's, we need to keep the focus. We cannot take the fact that this year there is massive pushback about the violation of women's spaces, the violation of women's rights, all critically important issues but it's going to burn itself out. Um, the CRT stuff, though, has been there for 30, 40 years. Um, the trajectory that we've seen, it is so deeply embedded. The, the racialization of education at every level is so deeply embedded that it's gonna be harder to get out. Um, you know, I've seen this in my own career. I graduated Harvard Law School in 1984. One of my classmates, and I saw this, um, the use of cr uh, critical legal theory to become critical race theory was developed by one of my classmates at Harvard Law School who invented the term, the concept of intersectionality and ultimately coined the term critical race theory. And what I observed in the early 1980s is that um, coalitions were being built among student groups based on color. At that point, it was coalitions against Israel. It still is, but it's much broader now. And so all of those things, but if you look at the students involved in that and you look at the student activists in the early 1980s, what did they do with their careers? They all went into academia. The students who pushed back against that in the early 1980s went into business and law, and uh, essentially we handed our kids over to these people uh, in school. And so, you know, this is something that is really deeply embedded. It's been going on for 30, 40 years in schools. It's now moved down into kindergarten and beyond. Um, and, and so our focus at Legal Insurrection Foundation 
is going to continue to be on critical race uh, theory and its offshoots, and of course it has a lot of different names. Um, and we are continuing to build out our criticalrace.org website. It's a website we rolled out in early February 2021. Uh, yeah, early February 2021. Um, and there is a desire for people to get information. And I, I think last year when I spoke here, I made the point that everybody needs to do what they are good at, okay? No one person, I could never give a great speech and lecture untethered to the podium as our prior speaker did. I just can't do that, that's not me, okay? Um, there are other people. So, you need to find what you are good at as part of this broader movement and understand not everybody can do everything and you can't be something you're not. So what we are is we're basically a, a research foundation, a uh, media foundation, and we uh, rolled out criticalrace.org. Um, so in a little over 18 months, we have had over 7 million user interactions. That means users actually clicking on something on the website. Some of that is page views, but a lot of it are, are resources, and I'll describe for you some of the resources. And so what we've decided to do is to make that our focus. Not to say we won't do other things. We will still bring teachers forward and parents forward and do our media stuff. Um, we have a built-in audience at the Legal Insurrection website, which is, is separate and has been around for 14 years. But we're putting a lot of our effort into continuing to build criticalrace.org. So the key function of criticalrace.org are our maps. And they are by far the most robust maps out there of critical race activities at various universities and other places um, in uh, our society. We have researchers who document everything. They essentially just go through university websites and document what the universities are saying they're doing. So the first of our maps was a university website. You can hover over um, your state, you can click on it, and you can uh, then find what a particular institution is. So far, we've covered 552 higher ed institutions. We're, we quickly built it up from 200 when we went live to 500, and we've held pretty steady there. We're now building it out and making it more robust and adding schools as we see the need out there. We have also gotten into the elite private schools um, and have done those. Um, we're now up to 57 based on their rankings um, as to the most elite ones. Um, and we've gone heavily into the medical schools. We have uh, 50 covered so far, hoping by year end to be up to 100. And as those of you know, and some of our speakers may address during this conference, as bad as it is in higher ed and as bad as it is in the elite private schools, it's worse in medical schools. It is absolutely horrifying what is going on in medical schools, the racialization of medicine. Uh, I am a named plaintiff in a lawsuit against the New York Health Commissioner for COVID therapeutic guidelines issued by the health department, which prioritized non-whites, that's the term they used, as if that's a defined term, um, uh, non-whites over whites for treatment. 
um, the fight in court is who has standing to sue. Do you actually have to have gotten COVID and wanted the medicine? So we're, we're fighting about that. And we've also covered the military service academies. Fortunately, we don't have to do 500 of those because they're only a handful. Um, and the, the good news about the military academies is that it's nowhere near as bad as in the rest of higher ed. The bad news is that it is present on almost every campus in a variety of ways, um, but because the military academies, one, there's fewer in number, and two, uh, they are you know, government institutions, um, there has been pushback ag against that, but it is still there in many ways. Uh, our research has been uh, featured in a lot of major publications, um, mostly conservative publications, but the thing that we really enjoy about our databases is that they get mentioned or used by non-conservative publications. If you read our inbox at the CRT website on any given day, you will see real nasty grams thrown at us from people who support CRT. You're racist, what are you trying to do here? and people who oppose it, who think that we are promoting CRT. Uh, and uh, that tells us that our methodology is working, which is to provide resources that people can use. Now, I don't know how anybody reading the website can think we're pro-CRT, uh, but um, the point is we're creating a resource that all people can use. And, uh, and that's really important because our the core of our mapping is just data. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. We're just telling you what universities are saying they're doing. Every link, everything we say is, has a source link and everything that we, uh, every source link is archived in case the page changes or disappears. Um, we have some resource pages there, and many of the people in this audience may not know it, but you're featured on those pages. We quote what we do, we link to your articles, um, we link to your videos. Uh, so that's why I say anybody reading the website, when they go to these pages, it's going to be pretty clear where we come out on this, um, as opposed to the maps, where the maps are absolutely just neutral data. So we provide all of this information uh, there, and you know, feel free to email us if you have something you think you'd like to be highlighted there. We're happy to do that. Um, so you can search by state, and you can search by school, and then you can, there's a drop-down menu that you can then use. And searching by state, you click and then you click on the school and you see the resources. And that's really where we're devoting a lot of our energy now is to building that out, making each school entry more robust. But there's just resource-wise a limit to what we're able to do. And then again, you can, you can search by school. And the military service academies, as I mentioned, it's there, but in a smaller way. Uh, not surprising because the top military brass, I think it was a year or two ago, uh, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff talked about white anger and white privilege and how it's okay to teach this stuff. So when the, li literally the head of the military, other than the commander in chief, is saying this stuff, it, it's going to trickle down. And so that's what we've been focusing on. 
Um, and we've, our medical re research has been featured very prominently. Our analysis of that medical school database has gotten a lot of attention as well, and we're hoping to keep doing that. And I know there are others here who deal with that. Uh, we view ourselves as providing a resource that people can use. If you want data, if you want information, you can use our database. And we're now surveying people who interact with the um, CRT website to find out what they find important, what resources they want. I think too often, all of us, we have our viewpoints, we have our way of approaching things. We don't really necessarily ask and survey what people want to hear. And we find that they want news, they want information about school curriculum, they want that sort of information. And so we're gonna be guided to some extent what the users are saying they are looking for. There's a hunger for, for knowledge out there. Uh, that's our contact information. So we're gonna keep the focus on CRT. Um, our databases have been used by legislators to document what's going on, by other researchers, by other authors, by media. And so we're not gonna lose the focus on that. Other issues are very important, certainly important. Uh, we each need to find out what we can do, but in this inflection point of moving from public relations to actually finding out where the problems are and giving people the information they need to actually implement changes in those locations, uh, that's what we do. Uh, it's what I think is our strength, and we're gonna keep doing that. And so I would urge you all to now focus not just, I'm not saying you do just focus on this, but to focus on solutions and how do you get those solutions to this problem enacted and change. Certainly school board elections are very important and I think we may see some interesting results in 2022 school board elections, but that's really the infrastructure that supports this, the budgets, the book publishers, the foundations, uh, all need to be addressed and we need to move from public relations to actually implementing changes on the ground. Thank you very much. <laughs>